You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2017 film, The Breadwinner. So this film takes place in Afghanistan, supposedly late 90s maybe 2000 early 2001 that time period is important because the very end something happens we follow this family mainly this little girl named parvana now parvana has a father and they were and she go she accompanies him because he lost his leg and i think it was believe it was a mine accident during the soviet occupation yes and he, he has to she has to help him with the goods and everything they sell at this little corner. Um, one day, um, is the Taliban, this is still Taliban-era Afghanistan, yeah. and they're monitoring everybody. Um, they, they start to pick on Parvana and the father. They get the, Mainly the um, instigator is a man named Idris, a young soldier. Yes. And he just insults Parvana, and then he insults the father. I mean, the father gets into a little bit of an altercation, and then the father, and then Idris feels that the father insulted him, so he feels he has the right to imprison him. So they take away the father, and they imprison him. And now, since the rest of his family are all women, the wife, the two daughters, Parvana, her sister, and they have a very young son, but he's like only five, so right. they have to find a way of providing for the family. And they originally try to see about getting their husband released, but the Taliban does not allow women to go out on their own without their husband or a male family member. So when they try to go there, they are caught by the Taliban. The mother is brutally beaten. So now where she can't even, she has to basically stay at home. So now Pravana decides after meeting another girl in the village who's disguising herself as a boy, she cuts her hair very short she pretends that she is a cousin, a distant cousin of the family, and she disguises herself as a boy and goes to that corner and sells some items from the house, but she also is literate. She can read. Yes. And she says, anything written, anything read. So if anybody has anything that they can't read, she'll give it to them and she'll read it. And through that, she meets another uh, a soldier who is uh, probably of the same unit as Idris named Razek. Yes. But Razek is not the instigator. He is more calm, level-headed. He is f- more friendly. Yeah, an and, older gentleman, too. Yes. Um, she, she's, he's illiterate, but he has this letter from his wife trying to learn what happened to her, but he can't read it. So she reads it and finds out she was killed, I believe, also in a mine, stepped on a mine. Yes. yes. And through that, they form a bond, but he's still unaware of what's really if that she's a boy to be skies. And event- but eventually she goes on. She's starting to earn money. 
and she around this time she's also not only providing for the family but she's also she also likes telling stories and she tells this fairy tale to her younger brother of this boy and he goes on this magical journey it's supposedly um Suleiman, and which is the name of the brother who passed away we right. don't know we at the time we don't know exactly yeah. why in the beginning of the film actually her father and her you can tell they've told each other this story quite a few times before and that's one of the ways uh, they pass time while they're in that bazaar trying to sell things. Uh, but it's also one of, one of the ways that he has of uh, reinforcing um, uh, a, a more positive view of life than their circumstances would seem to allow. And you can tell he has great concern for his daughter and wants her to uh, live a full life, but uh, in this misogynistic society that the Taliban are enforcing on Kabul, this is where this is by mm-hmm. uh, 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 interesting coincidence given recent events. Um, uh, he knows that's, uh, if not impossible for her, her uh, darn near impossible because of the role that uh, uh, women and girls are forced into by the Taliban. Yes, and then eventually they start. It, she starts making money, but the family is also concerned about the danger she's putting herself in, and the mother arranges for a marriage between her other sister, right, and another far-off family member. And yeah. That'll basically get them the money and protection that they need. But around this time, because... Parvana is also befriending this other younger girl who's also disguising herself as a boy. They run into Idris, and Idris, at the time, at the very beginning, doesn't re- recognize her, but they start pushing him, or he starts pushing him around, bullying him, yeah. and realizes who she is, and they get into a fight. And it looks like he's chasing her, but around this time, there's something of an attack, and I'm yeah. I'm, it's never specifically stated, but I'm assuming this is the beginning of our occupation into Afghanistan. This is 2001. This is right after 9-11. Yeah. It, it looks like uh, what's happening is uh, they're somewhere out in kind of a mining district doing hard labor yes. that uh, uh, boys t- uh, tend to uh, do in Afghanistan, uh, disguised as boys, of course. And then they, Idris happens upon them, and uh, he starts his usual bullying Right, and then he gets a close-up look at Pervana in disguise, and it dawns on him who she is, and so she, she and her friend, another girl in disguise, run, start to run away from him because they they know he he will either beat them up or kill them or turn them in. Uh, none of those options is good, and they run to a cave. And he is about to follow him into that cave when he is called by other Taliban to basically jump in, jump inside of a truck, uh, take that truck to the battle that you hear in the background and yeah. you see some jet fighters fly overhead as well. And that's the last we see of him. Yes. He is, to use a phrase that I think is completely applicable to uh, the way Taliban and other groups like that use young males... He his role is to be cannon fodder, and that's what he ends up being. Uh, we never see him again. It's pretty clearly implied that he died in the fighting. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then 
around that same time she's lost, the cousin that's arranging this marriage is bringing them over to come over to this city because, you know, he says the attack is happening. You need to get out of here now. But the mother, because Parvana has still not come home yet, yep. they say we're not leaving without her. Eventually, there comes the cousin saying, okay, this thing is off. You're going to be like this. I can't have you. And he leaves. And eventually, but Parvana is able to reunite with Razak and get them to free her father because they're now starting to execute prisoners yes. in that uh, camp. She eventually makes contact with her father. She escapes. And at the end, it's they, they reunite together. And that's pretty much the end that's of the movie. That's where it ends, yeah. And th- th- I... I've this is from Cartoon Saloon, which is I want to point out because this is from Ireland, and yep. they've done all the other movies. Because I their recent movie, which sort of turned me on to their other work, was Wolfwalkers, and their other movies are mainly around Irish folklore. But this was hugely branching out to something completely different from, and I think this film is fantastic. Yeah, and they do a very good job, and you can tell it. it by the way, it's based on uh, a book intended for young people. Uh, one of a trilogy. It's the first in a trilogy by an author, Deborah Ellis. And uh, the movie's somewhat different than the book. Um, but uh, you can tell she did her research on uh, Afghan culture. Apparently, she interviewed Afghan women in particular uh, in the process of writing this story and does a very good job of portraying uh, the very restricted and threatened role that women have in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. And at the same time, does a very good job of portraying a very clever, uh, very strategically wise young woman uh, who, who also shows some tactical smarts, so to speak, as she is confronted with having to live in that environment where much of what uh, is around her and much of the necessities of life, or I should say the supply of these, is uh, significantly out of her control. Um, They do a very good job of showing the uh, dire straits this primarily uh, female family is in once the father is gone. Mm-hmm. She tries to go to the market to buy food. None of the men at the market want to risk selling her food. Because as you as you referenced earlier, the Taliban are constantly monitoring, constantly walking around, and we see them constantly uh uh uh, dressing down people and whipping them for not living up to uh, uh, their interpretation of Sharia law. And they do a very good job of showing what kind of dire straits this family is in because of that. And, as I said before, uh, this girl's, um, um, it's a genius response to it. It's almost a necessary response, but it is a genius response. Yeah, and you mentioned that this was based on the novel by Deborah Ellis and the amount of she interviewed refugees at refugee camps, mainly Afghan women. But what's interesting is this novel is the first novel in that trilogy. It came out in 2000. And so that date is something because 
most Americans probably had no idea what was going on in Afghanistan. They probably were aware of what was going on during the Soviet occupation in the yeah. late 70s. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, in that, particularly in Hollywood, there was a glorification of these Afghan fighters who were taking on the Soviets, mainly one of the Rambo movies, Rambo helps out the allies. And in a James Bond movie, he goes over and they're clearly the fighters are supposed to be, is it the Mujahideen? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and but that's all we knew. But here yeah. she was, even before nine eleven, telling us what the Taliban is, what they're doing to these women, and it, it's really interesting that she did that. She knew about this even before you know nine eleven when this yeah. was brought more to. It's public pretty attention. impressive, and and she also she's also aware, I think, of the complexities of uh, as it were the politics in Afghanistan at that time because you you had the Taliban, but you had other groups and uh, struggles for power. Uh, there was a Northern Alliance, for instance, that uh, the U.S. Uh, worked heavily with in the early stages of the war. And uh, uh, the Northern Alliance, just before the attacks of 9-11, came under attack itself by al-Qaeda and Taliban uh, as they attempted to solidify their control of the entire country. And then uh, for a time after that attack, uh, some of Bin Laden uh, hid in the Tora Bora era, and I vividly remember watching the uh, uh, news accounts of uh, the search for him in that area. And it turns out that he had left that area sometime before we got there, ultimately worked his way into Pakistan, which was also a staging ground for Taliban. And uh, surprise, surprise, we find him in Pakistan, uh, just a few blocks away from the Pakistani military academy, um, so you can you can see uh, uh, the complexities and uh, um, difficult nature of dealing with with that uh, uh, political situation over there. And she manages to capture that, and it is impressive that she was aware of this before most of us were aware of it uh, uh, in America, at least, uh, and I would say the general public, at least. But there were there were elements of government though that were familiar with this uh still we were caught with our feet flat uh, when it happened when the 9-11 attacks happened uh, impressive and you we watch this movie and you realize the main story we mentioned is just how little value I, the taliban places on women i mean outside of giving birth they really maybe in taking care of the home they really don't see women as other value. I mean, and this is not just an Afghanistan problem. This has been going on in the Middle East. I'm, I think just a few years ago, Saudi Arabia just finally decided that it's okay to let women drive cars by themselves. Yes. But you, you, because like the, the instigating process is she's at a Parvana's at this market and this dog or whatever is sniffing around the area and she's just trying to shoo her away. Yeah. And she, she says, get out of here, shoo. And that alone of itself was enough for Idris saying, you're making a scene of yourself stop doing that. Yeah. He instigates it. And, and it's really telling, I think, that one of the things he says to her in that scene is you're trying to draw attention to yourself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, this is a, a, a demeaning and misogynistic uh, role that uh, she's being put in. And it, it's, it's, it's standard fare for the Taliban. And you're right, they expect women to basically stay inside the house, uh, even grocery shopping. I mean, I mean, if you want to compare and contrast societies, I mean, 
it's not often well known, but uh, in ancient Greece, uh, women were pretty much confined to the house as well. But at least they could go out and get food and water. Uh, we see that in Afghanistan, the young males do that, right? And, and the females are basically told to stay home, prepare the food, raise the kids, um, but otherwise stay indoors. So it's a very constricted role that she is placed in. And you can see uh, her father doesn't entirely agree with it. And you also see kind of a, a, a large amount of cowardice on the part of the males in the story. Uh, they do not want to go out on a limb to do something as simple as give her food or sell her food. It's not even give her food, sell her food like they would any other customer. So when I was watching this thing, I mean, I, I, it brought to mind uh, two aspects of Stoic philosophy. Stoic philosophy grew up in ancient Greece during fairly turbulent times, uh, early Roman Empire and uh, the late Hellenistic period. And these were times where a significant amount of what you needed for day-to-day -day life uh, and stability w was out of your control, and the political the political situation was uh, somewhat chaotic. And we can see that it's similar to things are similar to that in in uh, Afghanistan in the story in the city of Kabul. Um, now, two things that lessons that Stoics extracted out of that uh, situation are. Famous, famously um, uh, summarized by Epictetus, one of the famous Stoic philosophers who was himself a slave and uh, uh, knew firsthand in a very gripping and stark way uh, what it meant to have uh, most elements of your life being outside of your control. So one of the things they tell you is uh, um, it, it helps you to deal strategically with reality um, if you keep in mind, and I, I like the way they put it in the Greek, the original Greek, it's roughly this. Keep in mind what is up to us. It's, the phrase is very close to that. And what is not up to us. Another way to put that is uh, very, uh, keep very clearly in mind the things over which you have complete control and the things that are such that you do not have complete control. Uh, they call these externals. These are things that you, are contingent in nature. You can lose them at any time uh, by luck or design. Another second uh, guiding principle that they have is, is, is one that I, I have a quote I have to read. It's very interesting, um, having to do with what we mentioned earlier, roles. And this is Epictetus again in his uh, uh, handbook, the Enchiridion is what it's called. Remember that you are an actor in a play, the character of which is determined by the playwright. If he wishes the play to be short, it is short. If long, it is long. If he wishes you to play the part of a beggar, remember to act even this role adroitly. And so if your role be that of a cripple, an official, or a layman, for this is your business, to play admirably the role assigned you. But the selection of that role is another's. 
and what the the another that's being referred to there in the book is capitalized and in stoic conception that is god divine plan now what's interesting about it i think though is you can read this uh uh in a way that doesn't necessarily refer to any kind of a divine plan. We're all in, a, in situations where roles that we're placed in are chosen by others. It could either be nature or other human beings placing you in certain roles. Nature, uh, uh, you're a son or a daughter, that happens uh, by nature. Uh, you're being put in the role maybe of an employee. That's a joint choice between you and uh, the employer you're contracting with, right? Um, that's an, a more artificial kind of example. But the, whatever roles you find yourself in, and most of us instantiate several roles at any one time, they tell you to play it well. This translation had the word adroitly, but it, it means to play it well. And part of what they mean by that is to play it in connection with and in a way that allows them to come to fruition with morals, the right way to behave, uh, the just way to behave, and so forth. And we see her doing that. She has been thrust into the role of a uh, female in, tele in the Afghan culture, via the Taliban. She also takes on the role of breadwinner because her father is no longer there. And this is where I, I think she illustrates Stoic uh, doctrine. She realizes it's not a simple matter to fig figure out what's in your control and what isn't in your control. And it's not a simple matter to figure out which roles you are in. You have to think about it. And you have to look for the openings that are provided you. And in the case with the Taliban, you look for what they're expecting from you in terms of subservience. And you deny it to them. You find a way to deny it to them at the same time that you find a way to play that breadwinner's role and help your family. And she does that brilliantly with that decision. Well, quickest and easiest way for me to do this is to wear my deceased brother's clothes and play the part of a boy. I am young enough that I will be able to get away with it because human beings do not look, male and female human beings don't look all that different from each other. Once you close them up, um, I'll be able to pull that off. So she has the moral courage to do that and provide for her family. And she gets out there and she gets kind of comfortable in the role. And you can see at some level, she's actually enjoying it. And, that, too, I think, is something the Stoics want us to do. Dive into those roles. They're going to be challenging. They might even be dangerous. But as you're doing it, enjoy it. And, and that comes across, I think, very well in this story with this character. And Parvana's story reminds me of another movie, which was also based on a graphic novel, but it was Persepolis. Now, Persepolis was the story of Marjan Satrapi. She was a young woman. She grew up in Iran. And she wrote the story particularly when she was growing up during the revolution in 1979. And she grew up as a kid. Her parents were very liberal-minded. She was, 
liked a lot of like Western culture. She liked Bruce Lee movies. Even when she grew older, she liked. I think she she had Iron Maiden records and other kind of rock bands. But as the time when it was coming into the revolution, there was a lot of restriction on that. And she was very openly rebellious. If you watch the movie, when they're te- there's a scene in a college or whatever, and they're telling women like what they can't wear because it's obscene. She raises her hand and points out, like, look at that guy here. He's wearing incredibly tight pants. They're showing off certain aspects of his body. Yeah. And he's, we have to tell what pose we have to wear. He's lying out, you know, very spread eagle. And, you know, isn't that obscene? And there's a once, because this, this movie's definitely played more comedically, I think, than this movie. But yeah. there's a scene when she's running late for class. And these two male guards are asking her, what are you doing? And she says, I'm running late. I, I got, I'm in a hurry. And they say, well, don't run, because they say, when you run, you're behind moves in an obscene way. And she looks at them and screams at us. She says, well, then don't just then stop staring at my ass. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, you know, this is the thing about these these rules and these uh, uh, cultures like Iran. And, and these are these are not, these do not reflect well uh, on the males, uh, it, it says something about them that they are unable to uh, interact in day-to-day situations in environments where females exist. That they're they're somehow unable to control their urges to look and and so forth. And, and all the blame is put on the females for this. They are acting provocatively. It's on purpose. So we have to we have to clothe them in such a fashion where you can't see anything. Never mind that they're terribly uncomfortable out there in, in these outfits. And never mind the fact that you're basically condemning them to living in their entire lives in their houses and not being able to go out and pursue a career or anything like that. No, our purity is so damn important that we're going to do this. I mean, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a very damning commentary, I think, on the males. It really is. Well, what is interesting though about the breadwinner is even with somebody within the Taliban. I believe he is within the Taliban. Is Razak? Right? Yes, he is. And but he's considered more level-headed. He's friendly, and even when he finds out the secret, he wants to help her. He help, wants to help the. Get yeah. the husband out of prison, and he does not like what is going on, especially with Idris, who's the more instigator. Yeah, and you wonder if you want things to change. You you would say you talked about the cowardice, even if he is trying to do some things, he's still letting more people like Idris have the final say. And you like if things are going to change, you feel like you need the Raziks. Yeah, to stand up to the Idris, because they know what's. What's going on is wrong, but they have to stop them and have things change. Yeah, and they have to they have to be willing to take on the uh, risks to risk to their own well being and lives to do it. And again, uh, it's very troubling that uh, uh, in Afghanistan it seems to be the case that more often than not uh, there there just simply aren't enough men that have the courage to stand up to the bullies in the Taliban. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very odd, uh, almost, a feeling that the, it's the eternal return of the same here in 2021. Uh, we are landed right back more or less in the situation that, ta- that Afghanistan was in, in 2001. And, you know, that's, it's a complex, 
result, I think, of, as it were, the long view that a lot of the men do take in that country, a very cautious view, which basically says, uh, I will align myself with whoever happens to be in control of uh, uh, the patch of earth that I am in. So if my village, for instance, right now is run with uh, run by the Taliban, I will side with them. I will uh, side with the Americans if they overrun and, and uh, control it for a while. But all the while, they hedge their bets. And nobody wants to make that, or not enough people, I shouldn't simplify, but not enough people want to make the commitment to change uh, the society or stand up for something that isn't uh, Islamist in the worst sense of that word. Uh, and so you end up back at the beginning square, so to speak, because I think in the back of their minds, they all, they all are thinking, well, the Americans will not stay here forever. They eventually will leave. Just like the Soviets. Just like everybody else. And that is, is a very poignant part of the film there toward the beginning when uh, uh, her father and Pravana are telling the story to each other, how they describe the land as it, it's being the, the Silk Road. It's the crossroads for larger civilizations that are doing trade and also conquering the area. And you see one after another uh, uh, conquerors that have attempted to take and control Afghanistan and have failed. Um, very, very uh, poignant part of it. And it allows you to feel some sympathy for the ordinary Afghan. Because they're always caught in the middle of these things. And it's not just in the middle of, as it were, Afghans fighting external invaders. No, it's Afghans fighting Afghans. The tribal uh, warfare has been endemic probably uh, uh, at least as far back as uh, um, these uh, invasions that we see in that film. Going back to Alexander the Great and before. Uh, so they're always caught in the middle. They're always caught in the middle and uh, always having to play that kind of cautious game. And what's um, you know, the reason, if anybody knows, you know, the reason why we chose to do this episode is because of the events that have been going on. And watching this, it, it, what, uh, what's unfolding, particularly in Kabul now with all the evacuations, it's almost frustrating because you know, like this. Once we're gone, which will be within just a couple of days as we're recording completely, yeah, it's going to go right back to where it was. And you think we were there for 20 years. How many soldiers' lives were were died? How many civilians died? Yeah. And in the end, it feels like, we, it feels like a loss. It feels like a complete well, it, defeat. It, it feels like it's unchanged. Nothing changed. And you hear that... Uh, dismay in veterans that spent time over there. And you, you hear that dismay to some extent from some Afghans. You also are looking for somebody to take the lead, take over that task of fighting the Taliban. And you just don't, you just yeah. don't see it occurring. It's one thing if you say we've been here, we've been there long enough. We can't just keep staying there and staying there. Okay, fine. But if you're going to pull out, then there needs to be a set things so is with the minute we pull out, it doesn't go back to the way things were because then that at least with if we have a set in plan, then we know that we 
you know, wasn't a complete loss. Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to too far down the rabbit hole here of uh, political commentary, but it seems to me it would have been much wiser to leave a contingent there. Uh, Bagram Air Force Base should have never been closed down because um, we do want to have enough assets in the area to be able to uh, help us reliably gain intelligence for, I think, the inevitable uh, uh, development of Afghanistan once again being a good hiding place for international terrorist groups. Al-Qaeda is there. Uh, They never left. Um, There are certain areas of that country are damn hard to search as we found out in the Tora Bora complex. Uh, ISIS is also there. And again, there is that complex of uh, uh, relationships that exists between the ISIS in Pakistan, who uh, certainly has some bloody hands when it, when it comes to Al-Qaeda's work. Um, they're still there. They're still uh, cooperating with the Taliban. And... Uh, these groups, you know, they, they, there's a claim that ISIS and the Taliban are kind of mortal enemies. And I, I, I don't buy that. Um, they're going to use each other uh, uh, to advantage whenever they can. So we've left ourselves in a position where we can't, we don't have eyes, uh, or at least not as good a set of, as it were, high resolution eyes than we would have had if we allowed. Uh, if we maintained a presence of maybe four or 5,000. And certainly Bagram Air Base should have at least left Bagram up and running, uh, if only to make this evacuation not be the catastrophe that it has turned out to be. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. (laughs) 